You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leaf fan. Number three in the year, and I think number 32 in total, but who's counting? I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan, and joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we doing today? doing pretty good and we should be counting because we you know once we hit 50 then we can go like yeah all right <laughs> no i'm doing good uh little trip to the dentist this morning and then i have another appointment friday getting my chiclets uh fixed up yeah but, uh, other than that not a whole lot well we're excited to bring a guest on today that you didn't play with but you played against certainly for a while in mike kruzlinski Got a very interesting story to tell. Yeah, he. I mean, he, Mike was a good player. He was a big, big guy. Uh, uh, had some good skill, and I, I never got to play with him. Uh, not in the NHL, anyway. But we've played so many alumni games together, and uh, just just a great guy to play with. And uh, he's funny, and and just a great guy to be around. Yeah, he's done a number of charity things with us, so we we know him from, and he's very generous with his time, as you are, and uh, so we're excited to have uh, Mike on today, but we'd be remiss now. The Leafs do play a couple hours after we're recording today, we're recording a day earlier because of traveling commitments for our producer, but they have four games under their belt, they, you know, so what do you think so far? Well, I mean, they're three and one. I mean, I don't, uh, other than the last game, I think... Uh, you know, where they, they pretty much outshot Ottawa pretty good and, you know, outplayed them from what I could tell uh, for the most part. Um, I don't know, a couple of different moves where Spezza was put on waivers. Dell, I, I didn't understand uh, why he was waived. Uh, I mean, with the expansion draft coming up and that sort of thing. But I don't know, I guess they have their reasons for it. And, uh, but... You know what? They got a tough. Well, I shouldn't say a tough team because they haven't won yet. I don't believe Evans is coming in tonight. Uh, you know, but they're an explosive team, and they can be if they get go, get rolling. But their goaltending has been pretty weak uh, so far this year, and uh, I would imagine in Toronto, uh, the big boys will feast on that on the Leafs. I believe. Well, the, the moves are made for cap space requirements because they're so tight and they're allowed because they did that and they cleared waivers. They're allowed because of the injury to Robertson. Then they're allowed to move players back and forth now as a result and they can add, actually add a forward. So it was more done out of a technicality. And they knew this would happen at some point throughout the year and Spezza was warned about it. And it's why they do have Michael Hutchinson also in relief playing with Marley's for obviously exposure during the expansion draft, which will be coming up in uh, about four or five months. So anyway, there, that's must be, those... there must be a certain amount of games that a goalie must have had to have played to be eligible, to be unprotected. I would, I would imagine. I, I don't know that rule it's specific, but I think you're right, but you know, they can explore. He played a night. He was on the leaf roster for, you know, half the year. So, um, you know, he's got the games for sure with Winnipeg. So he certainly has the games in Hutchinson. He'll be the candidate. Whereas Dell sure. might not have. Dell well, might that, not that, have had it. Yeah. Well, they didn't know that Robinson was going to get hurt like he did and throw them into that corner right off the bat. So they kind of got caught because remember, they were going to use the backup goalie and let the starter sit right out of mm -hmm. the rink altogether. So that 
kind of they, that kind of put him a little bit jam where they had to make that move but they, it wasn't unexpected and i don't think people were getting all excited about it but it was calculated and it was expected and it happened it was going to happen sooner or later now they have a little bit of flexibility and they can move some players around so it's it's probably not all that bad but as no, a result of that move it's just no i was just curious that's all why yeah. they would make a move like that but i assumed it was because of the salary cap that's correct. That, that's all it was. It was just sorry, can't move. Now, as far as the rest of the league is concerned, it's very early to start talking about positioning and maneuvering and all that kind of stuff. But any surprises stand out to you with any of the teams so far? Personally, I don't see anything that's out of the ordinary for the start of a season. Uh, the only thing that surprised me is that Minnesota's undefeated. And, uh, that uh, could they, be you know, they, that, that probably surprised me more than anything. I mean, uh, other than that, nothing else really uh, astounding sticks in my mind so far. Uh, but the fact that Minnesota is undefeated, uh, I think they're 3-0, and I believe. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't expecting that. I didn't think they had a very good hockey team. They got rid of Stahl and uh, they didn't really bring in. They brought in a few guys, but no stars or anything. So I, I was surprised. Uh, to see them get out of the gates as well as they have. Well, again, with everybody with this in there, this sort of all divisional rule, everybody only playing themselves. It's, it, you know, we, we, the anomalies are going to sort of develop as we go along. So maybe we're seeing little signs of that with some of the teams that you're going to have to play as many as 10 times or 11 times or nine times. So <laughs> it's going to be, there's going to be some real fluctuations as far as the standings go and some of the movement we see with some of these teams. So we should, but that's a good one to start off with. But Everybody else seems to be falling in line, as you would expect, and it's going to get a little tighter. And that brings me to this. We, we get a question today from Evan in Vancouver, who asks, this, I like this one. Do you think it's fair that teams ride their backup goalies if they get hot early in the season? Well, I, I, you know, I guess you could look at that in a couple of different ways. Uh, you know, one, obviously, if the guy's hot, you, you want to win, you want to you, you yeah. play him. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want your number one guy sitting on the bench for a week and a half or two weeks or, or something like that. So, uh, you know what, it's kind of a, it is a good question because, you know, as, as a head coach in the National Hockey League, what do you do? You don't want to get your, your number one guy angry at you, but at the same time, you want to win. And if, if your backup's hot, I don't know. In, in my mind, I if I was a, a coach, I would, I would ride the guy uh, if he was winning. Well, think about this, Squid. You know, it's a fixed 56-game schedule. Every point stays in a division, as we're aware. It matters. Uh, you have yeah. no time to be worrying about feelings you got to be worried about time of getting points you got lots of time to have the feelings you know after the fact so somebody wins and the goalie is a little bit off go with the guy that's winning i mean it's all fair game for every and i mean this goes from top to bottom everybody yeah no i i totally agree with that i think uh with a short season the way it is i don't think there's any time to worry about anybody feeling angry or anything and uh, and then again with the expansion draft coming up too you know, and especially, okay, let's look at Toronto's situation, you know, where you got Anderson's contract who's over at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're going to re-sign him. But if your backup's hot and he's winning, you know, wins two or three games in a row, you're going to go back with Anderson or, 
Yeah, you know, I, I think in that situation, yeah, worry about the feelings at the end of the season and uh, just go with the guys that are going to win your hockey games. Well, that's what it's all about. It's all about the winning. And then speaking of which, uh, just we come to our historical moment in time for our podcast today. It, January the 23rd on this day in 1954, Toronto became the first team in league history to win its 800th game. They beat Detroit 4-1, but it also, here's something we hope we can see maybe going in the future with this hockey club is they also extended their team record home undefeated streak to 18 straight games. Point number two, and 20 years later on the same day, a guy that we know and had on this show some time ago, Ricky defenseman Boris Salming scored his first NHL career goal. Cool. That's pretty cool. And uh, I like the 18 wins at home in a row. We did yeah. that in South Carolina when I coached there. We won 18 straight games. It was split uh, the end of one season into the next season. But nonetheless, we, we won 18 straight games at home. That is, I mean, never mind. I don't, I don't care if you're playing house league. That is hard yeah. to do. No, think about that. Eight, well, you know, you were there 18 in a row. And you got to imagine the players after a time are thinking about it. Yeah, I think, I think they probably are. But at the same time, I think you got to mix things up, do some different things, kind of try to keep their mind off of it and, and worry about what they need to do when they get out there as opposed to what the result's going to be. And, you know, when you, you know, I know I kept telling them, I said, guys, I mean, at some point this is going to end. And we all know that. I mean, this isn't going to go on for, for yeah. you know, ever. Uh, so enjoy it and put everything you need to into it to make sure that it's a large number and not, you know, something that ends at 10 or 11. Well, so, let me throw this out. I mean, we're going off a little bit off where we were going to go, the real, but uh, just as the coach in that period, running through that 18 game winning streak. You know, did you do anything like you're, you're trying to keep these guys grounded and let them know that this isn't going on forever to take advantage of it? But what did you do with the other coaches? Did you ever do anything like maybe shake the lines up just to say to you guys, just keep you on your toes, even over winning or something, just to let them know, boys, be prepared for the unexpected? No, I, I never really tinkered with the lines writing. I mean, you know, of course, when you're winning that many games in a row at home, it's like, yeah. you know, why would you change anything? But change up the routine a little bit on, on a game That's what day, I was perhaps. To. Give them the day off and just yeah. go out and uh, we were in South Carolina, so the weather was pretty good. So we'd go out and kick a soccer ball around the field uh, outside the rink or something like that. Yeah. Just kind of make things different and, and, you know, so that they don't get tired of the everyday same old, same old all the time. And they, they stay fresh and refreshed, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yeah, and not complacent. Complacency, you don't yeah. want setting in because that's dangerous. And that, that's where I was going with that was, did you, you know, you, you must have that and you answered the question because you were doing a few different things to just to keep it, yep. keep it same and not out of the routine too extraordinary, but just enough to let them know, boys, keep the focus on the game. Yeah. Yeah, no, but there was no need to make changes to the lines or anything. The guys were all playing well. They were all clicking. The lines were playing well together. Yeah. Just change up other things so that it's not, you know, always on their mind that, oh, boy, we've got to win tonight or else the streak's over. And, 
you know, kind of get it out of their mind a little bit and let them do some different things and, and have some fun at the same time. Well, that's good. Well, that, that well, you could have shown the money ball, I guess, with the 21 game winning streak and showed them what they did there when the home run hit at the end to keep it going. Um, well, anyway, I think the listeners are tired of listening to us as usual for this, this part of the segment. Let's go and bring our guest on and see what Crusher, Crusher has to say. Squid, our guest today, enjoyed a 14-year career, including four at the Maple Leafs, originally dropped at 120th overall by Boston. He won three Stanley Cups as a player at Edmonton, won one as assistant with Detroit, along with being requested as part of hockey's biggest trade, which we'll get into. Please welcome Mike Krzylinski. Mikey, uh, how you doing? Gentlemen. Now, listen, how are you spending your days uh, during this pandemic? In a lot of reading, a lot of uh, TV, did some painting. I still have some painting to do, but um, we're, you know, we're quarantining. We're, Ricky and I, we're getting old, so we can't be out there rest, uh, you know, uh, jeopardizing our future. So we still got a couple of years left to play. So we, we've literally been, uh, we've tried to be very careful, only go out for, you know, groceries or down on the waterfront, we'll go out for a walk. So you guys are in uh, Niagara Falls. I, I think you're, I think you're right about there. Oh, I would be. Yes, you are correct. Right there. I can see the way in the distance. I can see the, uh, the building from Niagara Falls. Oh, and you can see your hat through the window. Yeah, wait. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I got the I got the shutters closed. So, but wait, wait. Oh, yeah, it, it's pretty difficult. So I go for a walk every day. Joyce and I usually, unless she's babysitting our grandson, but um, every day try and get out for about an hour's walk, and uh, that's about it. Yep. I don't, you know, we're not doing a whole lot. I mean, when groceries are necessary. Uh, just go get what you need, and and that's it. But, now, Mikey. Uh, uh, oh, Mike, you got a you had a couple of years in the queue, putting up better than a point of game average through throughout most of your time in two years there. When did pro hockey enter the equation for you as something you maybe want to do for a living? Yeah, you know, it never really did. Um, I think in junior. Uh, the year before, I was playing junior B hockey in uh, LaSalle, it just locally, uh, where I grew up. And um, got drafted. And, I, and then I remember we were playing for the junior Canadians where I was the defense, defensive player. I think I must have got, I think, close to 100 points. And Denny Savard was the offense. He got close to 200 points. But... Um, you know, I, you know, we were we were lucky back then. Got to play with uh, a lot of fun guys, and uh, it was just amazing at the draft to see how Montreal kept brushing Denny off, and they're like, "Nah, he's too small. He'll never do it." And we're just sitting there going, "Like, man, you guys just don't know what you're passing up." And you and you watch him here because our, I think my first year we still played at the old Montreal Forum, so. Right after the Canadians would practice in the morning, and we would go on in the afternoon. So we were still out of that building. It was they gave us access. We can go watch the game whenever we wanted to. Uh, it, it really was great. And here, both of us, Denny and I, were both right under the Montreal Canadiens' noses. 
and they brushed both of us aside. You know, so well, it, it turned out okay for you, actually. So, Mike, you played with the the Trois Denis, Denny Savard, Tremblay, and Denny Sear, correct? Denny Sear, yep. Yeah, played against them the year before. They were they were all rookies, and uh, yeah, that was you know what that really surprised me that year in '79 when they didn't take uh, uh, Denny Savard uh, with the number one pick. I mean, they didn't. They took a guy who had a great career in the Western League in, in Wickenheiser, but he just didn't right. pan out in Montreal. Uh, and and they they took a lot of heat over that for not taking the local guy and the French guy or, or the yep. bigger guy from the Western League. And unfortunately for them, it didn't work out. Uh, Wickenheiser, you know, had some injuries and you know just didn't really pan out. Whereas uh, Denny went on and had an unbelievable career. You know, and it was funny because they uh, they touted taking the bigger Denny uh, Tremblay. Who was literally just an up and down role player, mm-hmm. uh, a big a big guy, a big body. Where Denny Sear was like you, Ricky. He was a shooter, the goal scorer. Yeah. And uh, you know, you know, it was just phenomenal because there were times where we would be watching the offensive zone, and Denny would just literally be skating around the perimeter with the puck the whole time, forwards, backwards. And, you know, we're just shaking our head. We're going like, and you're going to pass up on this guy. It makes no sense. You know? Well, it was really funny because I told this story before on, on the podcast that a friend of mine, Billy Garner, was in the Chicago camp at the time. And they maybe had one spot open on the club the year Savard showed up there. And Billy was a center. And the first day of training camp, he phoned his dad in the afternoon after the second skate. And he said, I'll be going back to Moncton. He said, Dennis Savard's too good. This was the first day of camp. Yep. And he said he's going to be the number one center here before he can blink an eye. First day he said this, and look what happened. Yeah. Are you, now you going to your first camp, Mike, with the uh, with the Bruins, sixth round pick. What were your expectations, and what really went through your mind once you got there? To your first camp. You know, I'm going to back up a little because I was at a hockey school. I was running a hockey school at the time. Yeah. And we were doing drills, and I remember my agent at the time, Bob Beal. He had come down to the glass and he's pounding on the glass and I, money ice. I'm like, hold up, boys. So I go up there. I'm like, what's up? He goes, Boston Bruins. You got drafted by the Boston Bruins. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay, good. See it. Let's go, boys. Skate. You know. But you know, being uh, being their last pick uh, that year, um, like it, it, it was, it, like it, it wasn't even fathomable to me. Like it was like, okay, we're just gonna go to a training camp. But then when I got there and to literally be on the ice with, and Jerry Cheevers was still playing. So here I was a couple of years ago playing street hockey, watching all these guys. And there I am on the ice with them now. So between him and uh, Wayne Cashman and Terry O'Reilly, Brad Park, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So now you end up, playing in the minors for a couple of years or for actually basically one no. year. How was, how was that when you got there? Like what were some of the experience you take away from playing in the minors? Uh, you know, the, um, it's funny how we, we all break into the game with certain attributes and it's funny how 
you know, they're good enough to get you there or that far and then good enough to get you into the league. And then all of a sudden you got some rocket scientist that's going to change your whole game and make you an NHL player. Yeah. You just shake your head. Uh, but, you know, like we're, we're down in the minors and I remember Johnny Wilson was the coach. Mm-hmm. And I think I was one of the last, last guys to get sent down. So I would get on the ice and I'm looking around and I'm like, black, there's no other blacks. Right. <laughs> so I, I go up to Johnny. I'm like, Johnny, where do I go? He says, fifth line, no set, fifth line centerman, no wingers. That's a tough act, kid. Real tough act. <laughs> the next day, Al Secor and Tommy Songan get sent down. They're wearing black. And I go from the fifth centerman that's out of the lineup to the number one line. So that, that, that was my, my uh, one of the experiences, but I got to admit, like it was a lot of fun. They, you know, they, they taught you, you, you listen to the older guys, you'd see, you know, who to, who to go close to, who not to go close to, who to watch out. And I, I remember we had this, we were playing Adirondack and Peter Mahalich was down there. And the faceoff was just outside our blue line and their defense lined up really wide, figuring he'd win it wide in the enter. And I'm looking and I'm like, man, all I got to do is punch it through his legs and I got a straight breakaway. Bang, I punch it through and I go down and score a goal. We're all celebrating, celebrating. And then when we get back to the center ice for the faceoff, Peter Mahovlich, the opposition, taps me on the knee pads. He's like, that was a real nice goal, kid. I'm like, Holy, they even they even <laughs> talked you down here in the opposition. So yeah, I was lucky. I had a lot of good experiences. Fantastic. Well, you make the team for good in 1982. Now you now you went from in junior, not even thinking about playing pro hockey. You go there with low expectations. You make the team, you have a great year in the minors. All of a sudden you're going here and you're getting called up. Now your whole mindset has to possibly change. When you made the team finally, were you relieved? Were you expecting to make the team? Or were you just sort of overwhelmed? And really, who gave you the news? Did Cheevers uh, talk to you and break you know, you know the, the uh, I think the previous year, um, the first year I played the, the full year in Springfield, but the second year, um, I thought I had a really great training camp. And I honestly, I thought I deserved to stay there. And I remember them saying, you got to go see Harry. I was like, I got my meal money already. Like, <laughs> well, I go up to, and he's like, well, we're going to send you down. I'm like, really? I said, I'll be back. And, um, you, you know, it's funny. You just, something kicks in. And uh, fortunately, I was uh, a dominant player in my second year uh, as well. And uh Lean the team in points in that. And I remember well, one of the old guys, what was his name? Andy, Andy. I can't remember. But we were a mix of Boston Bruins and Pittsburgh Penguins. And we got sent down with Lou Angotti as a coach. And uh, actually that, that year, yeah, that he, put, he put 11 of us in the NHL that year. And I remember Andy Spruce. 
and the game was getting close, and he goes like this, time out, time out, and we all huddle in, and uh, Lou's, Lou's looking like, who called the, he didn't even call the timeout, and he called the timeout. And we all get over there, and Lou's kind of preparing to say something about, you know, let's try to set something up for this and that. And Andy just steps right in. He says, okay, cut the crap. Cruiser, just take the puck and put the puck in the net because we want to win the game and get out of here. I was like, okay. So, uh, fortunately, things uh, – I, I had great guys, and you know it was it was good timing. And so now, when you're playing with the Bruins, going yeah. now you're in the National Hockey League, and okay. going through was the NHL as you imagined it, and and maybe the second part of this, maybe not the first time through the league, but the, after going through the league a couple of times with the Bruins sweater on, did you sense that teams played you guys a little different? There was a different level of respect because of the original six sort of cachet they had, and plus the fact the Bruins were always good. Uh, what I had learned was, yes, definitely teams played us differently, but it wasn't because um, we were an original six. It was because we were the Boston Bruins. Like, yeah. everybody feared going into Toronto. Or everybody, everybody feared when they went into Philadelphia. Philadelphia feared when Boston came into town. Like, it was, mm -hmm. I'm on the ice. And I'm lining up against Bobby Clark. I've got Terry O'Reilly to my left, Wayne Cashman to my right, Stan Jonathan behind me on this defense, and John Wensick over here. <laughs> and, and Bobby Clark would always drop the stick right by your nose to intimidate you. And as he does it, it clicks into my head. And I get up and I, I've got a smirk on my face. He's like, what's so funny, kid? I said, my tough guys are way tougher than yours. And I'm going to grab you and you know what's going to happen. And you can see him look over my shoulder. And he's like, uh-oh. And the puck was dropped and he stepped back. I won the draw clean. It was the quietest game ever in the Philadelphia spectrum, all on a bluff. You know? So, but yep, that's right. Squid. Yeah, no, it's uh, well, that was a tough place to play, and and we didn't have that many tough guys back in Toronto back then. And uh, going into Philly and Boston, uh, it was tough because we didn't match up to them toughness wise, uh, you know, period. And we just we had a lot of guys that would just disappear on those nights, unfortunately, and. Uh, you know, so we couldn't go in and beat those teams in their buildings. I mean, at home, we were a different team, but still there was that, you know what, back then intimidation was big in the league. And yeah. the teams that had those, that toughness, they were hard to beat. You know, whether it was in their building or it was at home, it didn't matter. I mean, you know, when Mike just talked about the, the four guys right there, like four of the toughest guys that ever played in the National Hockey League on the same team, like, you know, what what do you – I mean, as a player, you know, you, we didn't have that. And, and uh, knowing that, I think a lot of guys figured, uh, you know, I'm not going to get too involved because if we end up into a brawl, we're, we're not coming out on the right end of it. And, and, you know, honestly, like, off the ice, those guys are 
the classiest gentlemen going, people that you really want to associate with, people that you want to be with. And on the ice, all they really wanted to do was play hockey. But there was always somebody on the other team that would start. You know, like, when you, you know, think about it, Boston yeah, was a small arena. Boston was a small, small ring. So they built accordingly. You know, big teams. Used, used to love the Boston Garden. If you got to the blue line, it was almost a scoring chance. <laughs> Five feet yeah. inside the blue line, it was a real good scoring chance. Ricky, oh, remember yeah. how we always, we're always cross the blue line or cross center? Yeah, yeah. Cross, uh, cross the blue line, let it go. Well, in Chicago, the old building, it was like cross center ice and let it go. Well, especially when Tony Esposito was in goal because he couldn't see it from there. <laughs> I just remember him standing there. And, like, of course, he caught with his right hand and he'd be just standing there. And then you'd shoot the puck from outside the blue line or center ice and he'd be just standing there. And then if it hit him, he'd just he'd react to it. <laughs> and if it didn't, it went in the net. You know, so uh, it was kind of it was kind of neat. It was uh, that was his last couple of years, and, and he was getting a little bit tough to see those long shots. In tough, he was still very very difficult to beat, but from out long range, he couldn't pick it up until the last second. So now, Mike, yeah, but you know, like, like it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun because uh, Rogi Vashon was there for that one year, so I had. Rogi Vashon that I watched in Montreal as a kid. Guy Lapointe was there. We had uh, Jim Schoenfeld, Peter McNabb, Terry O'Reilly, Donnie Marcotte, um, you know, Ricky Middleton, who was phenomenal Nifty. as a player. Nifty. Yeah, he really was. So, we, you know, we were – like I, honestly, I thought we were one more forward, one more defense – away from really competing because you, you got to learn, you got to, you have to learn the NHL. And, you know, I, I tell this now that the coaches, I don't care how long you've been in the league, you have to learn how does your team react when you go to a certain city, how do your players react when they come and play in your building? Um, you know, the, the hockey's changed a little bit, but you still got to learn a little, but the, uh, the, the, the players back then, like we were, we seemed to have everything. All we needed was just a little bit, one more steam. And two years later, they end up trading. I think I went in after scoring 23 and 25 goals. I went in and asked Harry for a $5,000 rate. And he looked, he says, I'll get back to you. So on our wedding day, where uh, we get married, we're down in the Bahamas on our honeymoon, and the phone rings. And I'm like, like who's calling us here? So I pick up the phone. Hey, Charlie, how's it going? It was a reporter from Boston. He's like, Crush, how's it going? I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. It's very nice of you to call me on my honeymoon. He goes, you haven't heard, have you? I'm like, heard what? He goes, you've been traded. <laughs> Over $5,000. Well, let's pick yeah. up on that. I mean, you got the words that every hockey player dreads hearing. You've been traded. Now, in your case, though, you're moving to the reigning Stanley Cup champions. 
Now, unfortunately for you, you got stuck with some guy named Gretzky and some other unknown by the name of Yuri Curry you had to play with. Yeah. How did that all unfold? And did when Sather spoke to you, obviously he must have called you at some point, maybe after your honeymoon or maybe after your wedding day, at some point he spoke to you. What was the message he gave you and why they went after you? Uh, you know, it was literally, uh, hey, uh, welcome. We were able to make a trade and we think you're going to really be able to help out. And uh, we look forward to your training camp. And literally, that was it. And we got the camp in pretty good shape and fell on a line with Gretz and Yari. And it seemed to just blend in like magic. Yeah, it did. It worked. Yeah, yeah I, would, um, I would say so. And uh, then, I, then I remember, like, the we had won the cup. Or we had won the cup, and then on our – exit meetings um i think i'd scored 43 that year and glenn goes you think you can get 50 i was like yeah put me with the right guys i'll get 50 for you it was done so all summer we're celebrating having a good time we go back to training camp and back then we played a lot of games remember ricky like edmonton we played 11 exhibition games yeah we would play a lot back then yeah yeah so I think we usually played nine or ten. Yeah. So the, the games that I was uh, in and playing with uh, Gretz and Yari, like two goals, one game, three points the next game, another goal, another assist, do this, do that. And I'm like, man, I had like 15 goals in the first seven games. I was like, I can't wait for the season to start. And before our home opener, we're ready to, we're going out. And Glenn would walk in and starting lineup and he's and he's staring at me and I'm like, what, what what's going on? And he's like, okay, we got Gretzky at center and Charlie Huddy and Paul Coffey and Yari Curran. He's looking right at me and he goes, and Asatikanan. And he goes, Cruiser, I don't need you to score any more goals. I need you to shut people down. And I'm like, oh, there goes 50 goals. <laughs> you know? Oh, well, you, end up winning, you end up winning three cups in Edmonton. Did you guys ever think the party was going to end? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, because we, we thought we had everything. We had, you know, size with Dave Semenko, Donnie Jackson, Lee, Lee Fogelin. They were, they brought the toughness. We had Kevin McClellan, Marty showed up. We have Dade Hunter. Um, Pat Hughes, uh, back Wait. then, Mess was really mean with his stick. So, like, if it ever got out of hand, we never have to worry about that way. Speed. Oh, um, you, you couldn't compete with the speed. Finesse, like, shooters, we had everything. We had Furzy and Moger and Nets. We had goaltending. We had everything. So as far as we were concerned, you know, like, keep winning. So well, you won three. You won three. That must have been incredible, though, to win. Like, what was that feeling like to, to be on a team that was that dominant and win three Stanley Cups? Like, you know, you think of Honor Richard when I meet him, and he's got 11. He doesn't even have enough fingers for his rings. 
I have zero, and you win three in a row. <laughs> How was that feeling? You know what it was? The first time, um, the first time it was so exciting, obviously, because you, you, you had never done it before. I had only seen it on TV as a kid growing up in, the Mon in Montreal. I would watch the Montreal Canadiens, and they won five in a row. So I just assumed you play in the NHL, you're going to win the Stanley Cup every year. But, you know, I get to Edmonton, and they had won the year before, so they knew how to win. I had to learn how to win. And I learned it that year. So the, the next years, the it, it literally – the problem was so simple. It was as long as everybody does their job, we don't need heroics out of anybody. And that's the way we played. Like everybody was a threat to score. Everybody was, you know, yeah, you're a, you're a third or fourth line checker, but put the puck in the net, you know, and. And you did. You know, fortunately, we did, yeah. Well, now, here's the thing. I mean, besides the obvious, the other teams are very, very special back in those days. What was it, the two things here, what was it that made them so special? You touched on it with some of the depth you had on the team and the guys are very tough to play against and guys knowing their roles. But who are some of the guys on the club, fans or listeners, may, may, may be surprised that carried a lot of respect that weren't named Gretzky or Messier? Well, it was always the third and fourth liners that did all the, the grunt work, so to speak, the, the tiring out. Um, you know, whenever we played Toronto, it would be like, don't let Ricky shoot. Um, if, if Toronto's going to win, Ricky will, Ricky will beat us. So if we just shut him down, you're going to win the game. You know, and most of the time, that's, that's what happened. But to put things in a perspective, like – Glenn had everything, and he could even punish you during game time. And I remember I was going through a bad spell. I, I think there was two games that I didn't score, and he's like, you okay, Chris? Yeah. He goes, don't worry, I'll fix everything tonight. I was like, okay. So we go out for the game, and all of a sudden, I'm playing with Messier and Anderson. And I was like, yeah, Mess and Andy, Cool. Well, the puck is dropped. They're gone. I'm like, oh, I got to get to the net. I got to get to the net. Puck is turned over. Oh, I got to back check. Puck's turned over. I got to get to that. Forget this. I never touched the puck change. <laughs> so during the game, he punished me by doing up and downs. Didn't even touch the puck. So <laughs> Trying to keep up with those guys. You know, you know and like mess. Mess was so mean back then. He played so hard. Andy, well, the stick rule of you always have to be in charge of your stick. That became that was because of Glenn Anderson. He'd go flying down the down the wall and he'd beat guys. And periodically, a defenseman would get his hip into him. And as Andy's coming down, he'd get the hip in, but and he's going down and on his way, it's like Right in the back, right, right in that, you know, over here or somewhere in that face. And you could see next time that defenseman's thinking, he's like, I'll just push him wide. 
because I don't want to get that stick in the yap again. So there was that. There was the uh, the four on four, the, the coincidentals. You know, yeah, they changed that because of Edmonton. Yeah. Yeah, Edmonton couldn't wait. But we were experiencing that four on four. Like I watched the three on three now overtime, and it is so exciting. You know, it's. It, well, now you're speaking about it's all right. that way. You're talking about Messier and about not being the mean player on the ice, and everybody knows about him. He is, almost was defined as the ultimate warrior, the which I hate that term, but the ultimate sort of leader and captain for a hockey club. What was it away from the rink or off the ice that he did that made him so special? Like he just seemed to do things that people just looked up to remember where he was. Nice. He was just a regular guy and he treated everybody regularly. We were Here's a typical mess where we would always catch that 750 flight out of Edmonton, fly all day and get into New York City at five o'clock. And management would get off the bus and we're all everybody we'd always sit there and mess would come from the back all the way to the front. And the doors would close and he's like, okay boys, it's uh, 530, uh, six o'clock in a lobby. 6.30, we're going to this bar for cocktails. 7.30, we're going here for dinner. 9.30, we're at this bar. You got somewhere to go. See you tomorrow. If not, that's our schedule. Let's go, boys. You know, so like, he took care of everybody. If you had friends or family, go see them. If you were a new kid and then Big city, didn't know what to do. You hung with the boys. So they, I got to admit, like, the hockey crew was, every hockey team was like that. They were always, always caring about, yeah, you know, if things weren't going well, after a game, you'd be in your room trying to figure things out, and there'd be a knock on the door, and like, what are you doing? Come on, let's go relax, you know? So it's, I think Ricky and I were very lucky to, to play in the NHL. A lot of great guys, you know. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. Well, it's funny you mention that because uh, a gentleman not too long ago, maybe about a year ago, asked me, he said, uh, how many guys that did you play with in your career? And he said, how many players did you hate that you played with? I said, well, wait a minute. I said, hate, first of all, is a pretty strong word. And I said, I can count on one hand the guys that maybe I didn't get along with or, you know, just didn't agree with all the time or whatever it is. And I played with a lot of guys for over 14 years. And to say that there was only five guys or less is pretty remarkable when you think about it. So that's, that's how, you know, how hockey players are. Uh, especially yeah. at the national league level, I mean it, it's it's just incredible how selfless the players are. Well, well Ricky, Ricky and I. Okay, so Ricky and I know, but Mike, how many guys have you run into that you don't like? Not very many. Every guy's the first. Hockey players are the best in the world. They're the first guys to step up anytime we needed any kind of help with anything to do with any of our charity events. Never selfish about stepping up and giving their time or whatever they could do to help. And it's just a different breed of athlete. And they, oh. they're forever giving back, always oh. giving back. 
and don't forget where they came from. And that's one of the biggest things I've always noticed. Now, speaking of which, in the summer of 88, you're enjoying your third cup. And a month before camp opens, you're a part of one of the biggest trades in history, if not the biggest trade in history. And you're requested to be a part of the trade along with Marty McSorley by the guy who moved. And of course, Wayne Gretzky to LA. How involved were you in that? Or were you involved? Or were you brought up to date? Or were you aware of what was going on all summer as that was taking place? Well, let me tell you what Mike told me, okay, before he tells me, tells you, okay, was that the trade was for him and they threw in Gretzky and McSorley. That's what he told me once. <laughs> Might have had a few beers or something in him when he told me, but uh, it was it was pretty funny to hear that from Mike. <laughs> yeah. So Gretz went for the five first round draft picks. McSorley went for Zelda. I was the guy that went for the 15 million. <laughs> I think uh, I think Marty and I alter that story. But you know, it, it's funny, Mike. Like uh, just two days prior, I was again running a hockey school, and I've got all these reporters that are coming up to me asking me, like, what do you think? Uh, Gretzky gonna be traded? I'm like, what are you smoking? Like, you could trade me, you could trade McClellan or Hunter or, you know, thinking in, trade Gretz, trade Canada. Like, what? I don't get it. Two days later, we're off to L.A. Unbelievable. Mike, do you think that that's probably something that, like, changed the league and changed what people thought and GMs thought about like, in other words, okay, if Wayne Gretzky can tra- get, get traded, anybody can get traded. And, you know, you do see some bigger names getting traded in the National League nowadays as opposed to you would have back, you know, back then. Because if you were that good, you just never left. And I, I think that trade kind of changed how everybody looked at things. Yeah. Yeah, but it was, it, it was just a monetary deal. It was Gretz for fifteen million, plain and simple. You well, know? no, didn't they get uh, who's a young kid? They got Carson. Jimmy Carson. Yeah, Jimmy Carson, Carson. But, but it was still and, fifteen million, Ricky. That's all it was. Pocklington wanted needed money. Well, I know. Yeah. You know, and but he I'm did saying it. the fact that that they actually moved them, whether it was for money or, or draft picks, whatever the case might be, the fact is the best player in the National Hockey League at the time got traded. And I think that changed the, the way a lot of people looked at things and said, well, you know, if Wayne Gretzky can get traded, then uh, I guess anybody can. You see, you look at it that way, and, and I look at it as hockey really is a business, and it's just a money-making venture. And I don't even know if certain teams – why I know for a fact certain teams don't know how to win, but I don't even know if they want to win. That's that's scary, well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back in the eighties too. You're right. I mean, the owners controlled everything. Uh, I mean, like we've talked about, like many times, you and I, they had yeah. Eagleson in their back pocket. They just they ran the league. I mean, we had nothing. I mean, we had no say in you know, what took place, what was going to happen. We'd go negotiate CBAs and Eagleson would just go off on his own and come back with nothing. And that was kind of the way it was. 
So, yeah, I, I can understand, I guess, that part of it is that the owners controlled everything and Auckland had wanted money. He needed money, and that was the only way he was going to get it. Well, it's you know, really and, funny because... Oh, and, and I think as, uh, you know, the, the trade, as, as harsh as it was on Gretz and as, um, what's the right word? Not, not degrading, but insulting that you would even trade a player of that. I think it worked out to everybody's best interests uh, even better than had expected. I mean, because then, you know, going to L.A., all of a sudden L.A. was on the map in the hockey world, not just a vacationing place. And, you know, and when won another cup. two years later, that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and then, like we had black tie affairs. It, it was just a great time to be there. I remember on one side of the building, this 30 story building, you had Magic Johnson in an LA Laker uniform and then you had Gretz in the LA Kings uniform. And like, it, it was exciting times back then, you know? Well, what but, was it like for you moving to LA? So let's go, let's, let's, let's pick up on that. So you get, you get traded, you're moving to LA and you're going to basically a new owner a uh, new sort of genre with the team with colors and the, and the new sweaters. You've got a, a, a celebrity base that you're going to tap into. It's Hollywood, all that kind of stuff. How is your mindset going in? And you're moving with, with the greatest hockey player in the world. You know, two things. Like, I'm going to play hockey. So the first thing I do, and I, I, we were negotiating, trying to get a, a little bit more money. And uh, I remember telling my agent, I said, I'll go anywhere but L.A., <laughs> and it and it was only because every trip for LA was a road trip. You know, Toronto, Montreal, you're back that night. New York, Buffalo. LA was a two-week road trip every. And then as soon as I find out, I hang up and I go, I either go to the paper, I must have went to the, the hockey news because I'm looking. And I'm looking at the lineup and I'm like, oh, Barry Beck. Mike Allison, Larry Robinson. I was like, Bernie Nichols, Gretz, Marty, myself, we got a good, oh man, we got a good, we can compete. I'm going. <laughs> you know, because it was like, let's, let's go win down there. And unfortunately, we, uh, we were a, a, an older team. John Tanelli, you know, these were, these are players that I used to hate playing against. They were so hard to play against because no matter what you did, that guy just still kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. <laughs> and unfortunately, we had Robbie Fatorik. I was going to bring him up. That was my as, next question. As a coach, yeah. And, and don't get me wrong, Robbie, when I classify, when people ask me, you know, good coaches, bad coaches, I put Robbie Fatorik into the good coaches category. But unfortunately – we were an older team. So he's out there skating patterns and this and that. And I'm like, Robbie, just tell Larry Robinson. He's got five cups. He knows what to do. Like, you know, like we didn't have, we had a teacher when all we needed was a dictator. Go, do, power play, penalty kill. You know, like the player, we, we older players, we already knew what to do. Like, 
let us go. Don't hold us back. And then, unfortunately, like, and Robbie was great, but he was all, he was always trying to teach. And well, the uh, thing like, about I, I say that wrong. Like, I, it didn't come out properly, but like. Well, yeah, let's pick up on this part of it then. That was the teacher. He certainly played the part wearing the cardigan every day, looking like Mr. Rogers behind the bench with the cardigan on for first off, like that, yeah. number one. But then number two, the story is always that he seemed to be trying to do things his own way to let everybody know who was in charge. Now, there could be a couple of things that sort of go along with that. Number one, the thought was, who's running this hockey club, Wayne Gretzky or him? There seemed to be decisions made that maybe are not always in the best interest of the hockey club. But this guy... He's maybe under some pressure to produce right away because anything less than the standing cup is almost a failure because now you have 99. So he's probably feeling a little bit of this, but there seemed to be this struggle that was going on between him and the room. Is that a fair statement? Robbie was a, uh, like a hard worker, honest player. And that's what he expected out of the team. Um, and maybe prior to whoever he was coaching, he never had a great player in Gretz. And, you know, now, now we're learning, man, you, you want to win, you got to get your best players on the ice. At the end of the game, who do you want shooting? Ricky or myself? You want Ricky shooting the puck? You know, so there was that, you know, we're all even. And I remember we were in Detroit one time, um, and the, the, the puck was kind of come to our defenseman. And he saw, and he released his man off the wing, and he broke, figuring uh, Dean Kennedy is going to get the puck. No, it was Bubba. It was, uh, Barry Beck was going to get the puck, and it's straight up the middle, and Gretz has got a breakaway, and we got a scoring chance. Well, the thing hops over his stick. And Gretz has got to turn back, double back, and he's chasing, chasing. And his, his man ends up scoring. And he breaks his stick over the glass, and the period ends, and we all go in. So, you know, drop my gloves off. I, I go back to the washroom. I come out, and I see Gretz has got his head down. I'm like, hey, you okay? Like, Crush is going to bench me. I'm like, yeah, right. So I go into the medical room and do something there and come out. Gretz has still got his head down. I'm like, you okay? This crush, he's going to bench me. I'm like, good, I'm going to play more. <laughs> and as we're going out on the ice, Gretz is stomach. Gretz, he goes, I go, come on, he's not going to bench you. So we were matching lines. And Gretz, myself, I can't even remember who. And I think Tanelli were supposed to go out. And he goes, Cruz, take center with McSorley and Tanelli. You're next. And I'm like, wow, he benched Gretz. I was like, okay, one shift, one rotation, no big deal. Second rotation, third rotation, fourth rotation. And Gretz is just sinking away, right? And I, I put my glove up to my – I cover my, my face, so the camera, and I'm like, Robbie. And he comes behind me. I'm like, you got to get Gretz on the ice. Well, you know, he shut up. I'm like, just get him on the ice. Got him on the ice. Well, anyways, we ended up losing the game and showering, getting on the bus. And I'm waiting, you know, like now, now I'm curious. Now the coaching part has got me. I'm like, what? 
So I'm waiting for Robbie. Everybody gets on. Robbie's the last guy. I'm like, hey, what were you thinking? It's like, oh, a player of that magnitude should never show that he's pissed off. I'm scratching my head. I'm like, man, you should be lucky a player of that magnitude even cares. You know? Well, go figure. Now, Mike, your relationship with Gretzky, describe that. Uh, and while you're on that, in your view, uh, uh, just from a hockey standpoint, maybe, what about him, uh, besides his talent, made him so special? You know, Gretz always had the right answers, and he always treated everybody with respect, whether you were the president of the United States or the towel boy. Yeah. Gretz always put you on the pedestal. And, um, you know, it's funny. Back then, you don't realize it, but, man, did he ever handle the press at the age of 18, 19, 20? All the way to, uh, I watched that uh, something for Joey, and Gretz uh, had the prelude, the, the intro, and he just spoke phenomenally. And it, it's, and that's the way he was. And I think a lot of guys, especially like Crosby and all the, all the leaders now, they used to watch that. And Gretz was so good, and he's always, you know, so eloquent with his words, and he's, yeah, like he, you can always tell that whenever Gretz is talking, it's coming from his heart. Yeah, compared and, to now, it seems like these guys are are almost taught what to say, and it's kind of a the same thing every time they're interviewed. And and for the most part, there's a lot of the best players in the league. They they hardly say anything. You know, if you watch, uh, and, and it, it's not an attack on anybody but if you watch Crosby's uh, any of his interviews they're rather boring you know because you're not getting anything out of (laughs) but Wayne was really good Wayne would explain things and he would he would talk to the press he had a good relationship with them and I you're right it's uh I mean the guy was a magnificent player but uh he he was good at pretty much anything he put his mind to yeah, but you know, like like even he's got his camp down in Vegas, and I get invited down, and the wife and I are get We get off the plane, and the second we see Gretz, he's like, "Oh, how you doing?" And you know, like it's your family. Like he was just the greatest of guys, and still is. So give me, give us, give the listeners something that may they may be surprised to hear about Wayne. Maybe one of his likes or dislikes to be, or superstition, or an unusual habit that he had. Maybe on the fun side. You know, it, it was, like I said, he was just a normal guy. Nothing, you know, like the crack the odd joke. Uh, loved his ping pong. But it was it was competition for Gretz. Like, we're all just, you know, fooling around and this and that. And Gretz has got to win. Um, we're winning five to one. And, uh, you know, a couple of guys laid off. And they're like, and he's looking. He's like, hey. We're here to win, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't as though you want to try to embarrass the other team. It's like, go and do your job, you know? And like, we all learned, go do your job. But I remember, you know, uh, what was it? Cough. Cough had a great night, like two goals, two assists, but he needed one more point to break the record. And Gretz is like, 
So the cops like, yeah, what? So what? He's like, we're gonna do it. You know, like he would force you to do things, and it was like he had that that persona, that will yeah. to to get the best out of you. That's that's what he really did. He, he really brought out the best in everybody, and that's what made him so famous. That's you know, it's a funny that's, funny that's story about Gretz. Uh, in one of the All Star games I played in, uh, Johnny Garrett was a goaltender. And he was playing outstanding. And, you know, the guys were thinking, okay, he might win the card. Like, he might get the MVP in the All-Star game. And I remember Lanny and a couple other guys. And then all of a sudden, Gretz just turned it up halfway through the game. And I don't know what he ended up with, like four goals and three assists or something. <laughs> something crazy. But And then every every time he scored or got an assist, you'd hear Lanny yelling at Chiefs, you know, there goes one of the wheels, there goes there goes the other wheel. <laughs> sure enough, Wayne won the car. <laughs> well, you know, like he he was he was a great player, but he was just one of the boys. And he like I said, he he put you on a pedestal and I it obviously meant a lot to me and I, I'm sure it meant a lot to everybody. That's fantastic. And well, every, every good little party comes to an end. And in 1990, you get moved again. You move to Toronto. You come when this team is in sort of a, a phase of respectability. You move Tom Watt, I believe, was coaching when you arrived. Uh, Pat Burns then was brought in. So just take us through that period. First off, getting traded back to a, a, a team as, such as Toronto. And maybe what was going on with that hockey club and the Pat Burns influence. Now, was he as influential on that team as people make out to be, or is he just the fortunate to be the, be the sort of bearer of some great trades by Cliff Fletcher, meaning getting guys like yourself and of course the Gilmore trade, which turned everything around. Uh, yes, I would agree with you that. I think, I think he was more finding his way in coaching and um, the players that were brought in by Cliff, um, in my eyes, I, like I thought, you know, we were, we were going the right way. And, you know, maybe we, we, we needed a little bit of, well, in, in my, honestly, like in my eyes, I love Tom Watt. I don't think they, I think we would have had more success with Tom Watt because Tom Watt was a teacher. John Muckler was a teacher. As in, we were waiting second round we had like 10 days off and everything was like okay we're going to be playing that team and left side left side left side so we bottle up the left side well after the first period we're losing 2-0 muck walks in and he's like forget what i said forget what we practiced right side and we're like really we end up losing that game four to two but we end up winning the next four games straight because muck was smart enough to catch it and teach us to do something differently. Well, I think Tom Watt was like that. Unfortunately, he was he was there my first year, and I really enjoyed him. He was a student of the game. He was a teacher. But they, uh, I think they just gave up hope on him. So, but, but let me back up uh, before the trade. So we were on the plane. I'm sitting next to Tanelli reading he's reading the paper and i don't know what i'm doing 
Leeds looking. He's like, Toronto looking to make a trade. Experienced centerman, team out west. And he's like, that's you. <laughs> he's like, former goal scorer, now an all-around player. He's like, that's you. I'm like, come on. So I turn around. I'm like, look, sorry. I'm like, Mark, go talk to Gretz. So he goes out, comes back, not going anywhere. I'm like, see? Two plane rides later, they made the trade in the air. I'm coming to Toronto. <laughs> so that's how that happened. Uh, that goes. is hilarious. But yeah, like, you know, you know you're what? Like, it's always easy to look back, but when I was here, yeah, we were missing a few pieces, but I, I'm looking and I'm like, wait a minute, you got, you got a talented kid in um, Gary Lehman, a 50 goal scorer, and you're getting rid of him. You got Scott Thornton, who went on to play, I think, 21 years in the NHL. Long time, yeah. I, I was there. I, I was brought in to replace him, and I'm like, why are you replacing an old guy when you, it's right there in front of you? Al, I afraid of you. Man, that guy was an animal. He blocked shots. He shot the puck harder than anybody. Gave his heart. They trade him away. And they're, they're trading guys away. And I'm like, what the heck are you guys doing? You know, like, so I should have been in management back then. But, you know, like, it was, it, it was as though we weren't doing the right things. Um, and then, Fortunately, Cliff pulled off that big trade that brought Dougie and four other guys here. Um, and we all know the rest of that. Just picking up on that, with the trade comes in and Gilmore comes here, and I'll ask you the same thing of him as I asked of Gretzky. What was it besides his obvious talent, where he was probably the best player in the Nash Hockey League for those couple of years where you guys had real success, that made him different than other guys? You know, Dougie just uh, was, what, 5'9"? 160 pounds, soaking wet. But he played like he was 10 feet tall and 400 pounds. Like, you, you couldn't stop him. Um, he was relentless. Um, he cared for the guys. And like, every game he played, he, like, he left everything on the ice for that game, for that sweater. You know, we just we just didn't have enough support around him or enough luck uh, to beat Kerry Fraser. You know, the one thing I'll say about Dougie is that, you know, when he came into the league, he was a checker. Like, he was a third-line centerman in St. Louis. He was – his job was, was a shutdown role. And he had to learn how to do that. Because he was he was an elite player in junior as well in Cornwall, and uh, but he when he got to the National Hockey League for for three four maybe even five years, he was a defensive uh, centerman on the third line, and I think that in itself, I mean, you knew he had the talent obviously, but I think learning how to play at that end of the rink and and be responsible, and then you then all of a sudden you get go to Calgary then on to Toronto. And then all of a sudden you're let go and they'll say, yeah, just go and play. You're a top centerman. I think that kind of, you know, helped them a lot was that early 
teaching of being a real responsible player, in my mind, anyway. Because yeah, I remember playing St. Louis. And I, and I know when I when I played in Toronto, I didn't have that I didn't have that confidence, you know, to to be a dominant player when you're on the ice to you know take the fucking goal. You know, and I, I attribute that to coaching. Like the, the coach has got to install confidence into everybody, and you've always got to do, you know, everybody's got a certain role, but I don't know. I just. No, I, I, don't, I, I don't know think what we you're were. trying to say, and I, I, I got to agree with you that coaches have to realize the guys that they have to kind of put their foot on, and there's other guys that they got to come and just say, hey, just go play your game. You know, we know how good you are. We know what you're capable of. Just go play the game and, uh, you know, and leave the guy alone. And, you know, I had my best year in the National Hockey League when Mike Nikolak was our coach. And not because Mike had great systems or anything. He didn't have anything. But he 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 talked to me and he, he called me in certain times. And we wouldn't even talk necessarily about hockey that much. But he always said to me, just Play your game. Just go, go, do what you do best, and don't worry about it. You know, so I mean that gives you confidence, and that you know made me a better player. It was like, okay, he's he's counting on me, and I'm not. I don't want to let him down. You know, because he's given me the clearance to go and play my game. I don't want to let him down at all, and I think that makes you a better player when you have that mindset that you know that the coach believes in you. Well, that and like now that we're going to get into it, um, you can't win with, you know, one, two lines. No. Uh, there were, you know, when Mario came in, okay, maybe you could have won with just Mario's line. But as the years went on, people started to learn and it was like, you need a four line, you know? Um, yeah, the, and, and maybe that's what it was. It was like, it, like it was hard playing some games where you're only playing, you know, four, five, six minutes. Like, what do you expect? Like, what, what really do you expect out of that player? And if, if, you know, if they get, if your big boys get shut down, like th there were a lot of games, uh, in Edmonton where times were tough. And the third line would get the first goal. And then the fourth line would get the second goal. And then the big guns, you know, just piled it on. But like. Yeah, I know. I was certain, on the other end certain, of that many nights. <laughs> you know, certain times you had to rely on the third and fourth lines. And I don't think third and fourth lines when in my time here were relied on. You know, it was like, if we're going to win. That's the way we're going to win. And that's the way it is. Well, listen, you know what, uh, just on that line, that all starts like any good business or anything that's run today, it starts at the top. So you now played for two organizations from the original six. I always like to go back because of the history and, and, and these teams have, have some, some fortitude going back. You coached in one with Detroit. So you played three of the original six. You played another good hockey culture in Edmonton. LA was turned on with Gretzky and all that. So you had everything going for you. It's been said that what I like to get from you, Mike, is sort of the attitude teams and organizations had towards winning and losing. Boston, now, when we had Tommy Ferguson with uh, Dan Darrow, 
Ferguson, I mean, he came from Boston to Toronto. I like they lose two games in Boston. Harry Sendon be losing his mind and ready, ready to trade half the team. And Dayu said it was the same attitude in Montreal. And they came to Toronto. They didn't win for six games, and he thought we're going to get killed today. Nothing was said. Now, that started probably from the owner at that time of Harold Ballard. So they, the bombastic owner like led all that. And when you were there, it was a different owner in Toronto. But walk us through some of the organizations you played for and just sort of that approach. No team wants to lose, but there's definitely a different culture as far as winning and losing goes, if you know what I mean. You know, I, I, was, I was lucky because uh, Boston, it, it was still old school. Even though we never competed for the cup, in our minds, we were right there. Edmonton, we were able to get it done. L.A., two years in a row, you could see where we're still short a player or two. We, we beat in the playoffs, first round of playoffs, we beat the defending Stanley Cup champions. We just ran out of steam. We come to Toronto, it's a rebuilding process. We make it all the way to the semis. And then in uh, Detroit, I end up losing my last game to New Jersey. So I was lucky where I was always on a team that was competing for the cup. When, when you look back at it, you know, where Must be unfortunately, nice. unfortunately, Ricky was <laughs> on the receiving end of the back side, you know, and you know, now that I've been there, done it, the, the GM is most important. And in that same pause, it's the coach that is the most important because he's got his finger on the pulse. And he knows exactly who's on that night and who's not. But in the summer is where the GM, you know, the coach will say, well, we got to get rid of that piece, that piece, and that piece. And I don't always mean by, I need a 50-goal scorer, I need a first-line center, and a right-shot defenseman. It's just pieces of the puzzle. And then the GM has got to put, if he's got belief in the coach, he's got to, you know, put belief in him that, hey, you got rid of that, and I replaced it with what you wanted. You got rid of that, and I replaced it with what you wanted, what you wanted, now go and win the cup. You know, and it's honestly, it's that simple. But for some reason, it, it's really hard for a lot of teams. I, uh, I have no idea. Well, you can see that in Toronto when they've put the, the turn in Toronto has come since the change in management. And you've, it starts right at the top, as I said, and you can see it filter through the organization and the way they handle things, they, the attention to small details. And you talked about it at Edmonton, how it filtered through and even Boston, the way they carried it on. So that's... So on those lines, again, we are just got a few minutes left. And Crush, we want to thank you so much for your time today. Uh, who was the best captain you ever played for with? Pardon? The best captain you ever played with. Tough the question, because you had a couple of them. The best captain. Wow. And maybe not the obvious guy, maybe a Gretzky or maybe somebody who led you. as Maybe it could have been an alternative, but just somebody as a good leader. You know, I can't even remember my captain in uh, in Boston. Ricky, I need some help. Uh, Who's captain? Me, Wayne man. Cashman? Terry <laughs> O'Reilly? I can't Cashman. remember. O'Reilly, yeah. O'Reilly was, was it Brad captain. Park? 
No, I think it was I think it was Terry O'Reilly and like Cashman was an I, assistant. No, I think it was Cashman. Yeah, like, uh, like every one of uh, Cash was an assistant, but uh, no, Terry like, O'Reilly was the captain. Yes, I do remember that. Yes, and like well, early in the eighties, and then one of the greatest guys, one of the oldest guys. He would be on the ice, the last guy to get off the ice with the puck because he competed so hard. His love for the game, he was just phenomenal. And then I go, Gretz, Gretz, and we come here, we have Dougie, and then I go to Stevie Eiserman. So it's like, again, I hit the jackpot. So, okay, who is the, who is one of the, let's get, make it light then. Who is one of the biggest prankers you ever played with? I heard Gilmore's. Prankster, the funniest guy, like and pulling jokes and getting guys, keeping dressing rooms loose. Keeping dressing rooms loose? I don't know, but prankster? I, th I think I can fall into that category a little so bit. You're one of them. I was one of them. <laughs> who's okay? Who's one of your victims? Uh, al along, along with uh, McSorley, we'd be uh, shoe shining uh, guys and. Uh, Cutting socks. Uh, you know, like it, it, was, it was all in fun. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't mean. It was all done in fun. Um, but well, like, hilarious, some of the stuff, like I can't even tell you some of the stuff that was done. You know, like taking a taking a number two and a guy skate. <laughs> But you mentioned Marty, Mike, and I, I remember like every alumni game when he would come in the room, I'd be hiding everything so that he wouldn't get at any of my stuff because I know I've heard about him and what he's capable of doing. So when he walked in that room, if I I see him come in the room, I'm hiding things in my bag and everything so that yeah. there's nothing that he can touch. <laughs> oh, but but it was the uh, oh here here's a good one that was pulled on me. It was the uh, trade deadline. And we had one more day to go through it. And I walk into practice and all my equipment is gone. <laughs> and I'm like, nah. And then I, I look at Marty and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Cruz. I was only joking. <laughs> Put the stuff back, Marty. Well, there was guys like Ty Doman. They said, you never want to cross Ty because he just never took getting even it was even for the rest of your life that he'd be chasing you curtis joseph was just would avoid all of it because he just didn't want to be on the receiving end all the time and gilmore apparently was rumored to be quite the quite the jokester himself in getting guys yeah I, I think from what i hear from our alumni games i think that matthew barnaby buffalo crowd they, i think they're a little goofy as well <laughs> Well, Rick can talk about that. He was there in Buffalo. Yeah, but not when he was there. Not when Barnaby was there. He was. He came a long time after me. But uh, no, Buffalo is a great place to play. And you know, it's it's funny you, you mentioned that because we had Clint Malarchuk on recently, and that year that I got traded to Buffalo, we had one of the better teams in the league, and our record wasn't great, but. Ted Saver made some mistakes, I think, and and, uh, and they made a couple of trades, like Lindy Ruff, uh, who else? There was a couple other guys that they traded. Like, you, you're talking about exactly that. 
that they traded these guys that we really needed in order to win. And, uh, you know, when I think back at some of those years that I played, that was one of them in Buffalo was the year I got traded there. We had a heck of a team, but then all of a sudden guys are getting, you know, traded out and guy, those are guys that we needed in order to win. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it was frustrating. A lot, a lot of times the, like, you know, good coaches will, will know those guys, you know, because the players certainly do, you know. Well, the, the, only good thing, do, the only good thing that came out of that was Lindy wore 22 and I was wearing 12. So when he got traded to the Rangers, I got to wear 22. So <laughs> that's the only good thing that came out of it because we needed a, a, a Lindy Ruff on our team if we were going to advance in the playoffs. And um, there was a couple other guys that they traded that year too. I can't remember uh, who they were, but uh, they, were, they were really – team guys that we really needed in order to get over the hump. And uh, unfortunately, they, I guess they didn't see that, that we needed those guys and moved, moved them on. Yeah. Well, Mike, we want to, uh, we, we, we've taken up a lot of your time and uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. You've uh, provided us with some great insights. Um, we didn't get a chance to get into the coaching. Maybe when we get further down the season, we'll get you back on for a talk about uh, the coaching news. You and Squid can uh, exchange some uh, stories from behind the bench. You have a cup ring, though, but he's got you on that one, though, Squid. Ah, he's got me, but you know what? I like to think we're, we're, we're both pretty good because we, both of our boys went the college road. They were smart. <laughs> I like to think that we had something to do with that. And uh, they both got their, their, their schooling, and then they got to play some pro hockey. And I know Mike's son, Alexander's uh, in the agency business now in Chicago. My son is still playing, and he's an assistant coach, a player assistant. Um, but they both have their education in their pockets. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, look, now mind you, College wasn't an option really when we started in 79, 80, back then. Uh, very few players were, were making the NHL in college. So it's a lot different now, obviously. But I'm glad that both our boys got their education and they're doing well. Fantastic. You know, and it's, it's, it's funny you say that because literally um, I took off because the, I remember the junior Canadians were going to draft me. And they said, hey, come and come and see a game. And I went and saw a game. And I was like, holy jump. And these guys are men. They're going to kill me. I'm not ready for this. So I ended up taking the scholarship and running down to St. Louis to get away from the juniors. And it's funny you say that. By, I think by Christmas, I, you know, the, the goal was I want to be the opening, opening face-off. I want to be taking it. And we were in Air Force, and I'm taking the opening draw. And things are going well, but... All of a sudden, my ice time is just slowly diminishing. And by Christmas, I'm barely even playing. <clears throat> well, the junior GM shows up and he's like, we still need a big centerman down the middle. I'm like, parents are coming in next week. I'll get back to you. I remember talking to my dad and uh, running the story. He's like, go talk to the coach. And I'm like, coach, uh, what's going on? He goes, you've got four years ahead of you. You're a freshman. I was like, really? Bye. And I went back. 
And that was the year I got drafted. And I saw my old captain from St. Louis University, Doug Butler, who was 24 years old, going to his first Bruins, Bruins camp as well. So you're right, Ricky. The guys weren't, weren't going to college to make the pros back then. No, Makes sense for no. sure. Well, guys, well, guys, well, Mike, again, we want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, hopefully get through this pandemic like all the rest of us and get back out and doing some things and some enjoyable things. And you can play on the wing with uh, squid there and you can set him up and he can bang a few in for you. I'll be counting on him. Well, squid. Oh, crusher. He's uh, certainly an entertaining guest. Got lots of stories. He, he had quite a, uh, quite a career for a guy who really didn't have any aspirations to play a pro hockey at one point. I got to tell you, he, he's, he was a good player and a uh, big, big guy. Um, I mean, you know, four rings. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I just, I, I just can't fathom it anymore because I see every, you know, we're playing all these alumni games. Guys are coming in with three rings, four rings, three rings, two rings, and I have zero. So, <laughs> but no, Mike's a good guy and he was a heck of a player. And, uh, uh, but he's a, he's a gentleman and he, we, we have a lot of fun together. Well, you can see, too, that his, his observations were sort of targeted at, at certain teams where that there is weakness and maybe some of the coaching at some of the decisions being made in L.A., you can see there was definitely a bit of a strife there between the players and the coach. And even in Toronto where, well, you know, the old line goes is, you know, would the coaches get too much credit when they win and not enough when they lose and so on and so forth. Same with the players. And. You know, maybe Pat Burns, uh, you know, he was the, listen, you got to be, you got to have good luck to, you know, have good luck, good luck and good management seem to go together. And, you know, he was, he was the recipient of some good trades and some good maneuvering on Cliff Fletcher, who maybe doesn't get enough credit for what he sort of tried to attempt to do back in those days. And you could imagine if they had a good owner back mm -hmm. in the time, who really knew what he was doing. Uh, how things might have turned out differently. I, I read a story today about uh, Phil Esposito when uh, he was with the Rangers and he took over as a general manager job. He claims that he was in the running for Gretzky for the Rangers. And their attitude oh, really? was, what do we want him for? What do we want him for, they said. Well, the, the Rangers are always kind of rumored as one of the teams because big money. But he was, if they'd written the check the way he worded it, he could have been, it could have been, he could have been right in the running with them. But they, well, they what do we need him for? There, but... <laughs> well, what do we want him for? The gardens are sold out. We don't need any selling any more tickets. And what do we need? What do we need this guy for? And the attitude sort of was get this team to the final, lose the last game. Then we don't have to pay any more money and everybody's happy. It's kind of that. Well, attitude. when you talk about it, like listening to Mike talk about uh, Robbie and everything else in LA, for instance, like there's a situation where, Sometimes you just have to get out, get out of your own way. Uh, and, you know, you, you realize what you have and you kind of just have to get out of your own way and just say, okay, boys, just go and do your job, play the game the way you can play it and try not to be too technical or, you know, like benching Wayne Gretzky because he, you know, somebody pinched and he was going the wrong way and he didn't catch the guy. Like, I mean, those are things that mistakes that, that guys make because they get in their own way. They just can't seem to get out of their own way. And, uh, you know, I think I had a few guys like that coaching me too. 
you had a few there's been a few a lot well he breaks a stick and he gets benched i mean because he cared i mean my god uh, I, I, yeah well uh, uh, those are and again in that dressing room how many Stanley cup rings were in that room 15 or 16 or something oh. with guys like tonelli and robinson and gretzky and uh, and anyway, Marty and, I, I mean something and Mike Marty, Marty yeah, and Crush like yeah so well anyway we want to thank Mike very much for joining us today uh guys watch for Squid and the Ultimate Elite fan uh we'll be making some announcements throughout the week for our next guest coming up send us any of your questions that you'd like to throw at us we want to thank Evan today for giving us such a question about the goalies and we'll be back at you again next week. Look for us on all the social media networks. Uh, we'll be out there and talk to you guys soon.